and uh, my son Ben graduated from college. I remember this day really well, man. It's just been months ago, and it's easy for me to remember this day. Then this picture was when our kids were like nine and seven and 11, and it's a little farther away. It's a little harder for me to remember what happened on that day, I'll be honest with you. I do remember that that outfit, for those of you who traveled to the National, was about the whole national thing and, and, and the boys singing and that kind of thing. But it's harder for me to remember that. And then, boy, you go back even farther and you look at this picture. And I'm telling you, I don't know what happened to me between that time and then, but I'm clueless. Sometimes it's just hard to remember. God knew that it would be hard for us as a church to remember. So he gave us an object lesson called the Lord's Supper. And in the Lord's Supper, the challenge is that he gives us specific things to remember of what Jesus did for us long ago. Because let's be honest, sometimes it is just hard to remember. So let's remember. Let's look back. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 27. And let's see what Jesus is doing on the cross. Let's remember and if you'll look with me and just kind of follow along, you're going to see three things that we need to remember as we partake of the Lord's Supper. The first thing we ask ourselves is, what's Jesus doing on the cross? Here's the sinless, righteous, pure, holy Son of God. And yet in Matthew 27, where you're turning your Bibles to right now, we find Jesus on the cross. What in the world is he doing there? Well, the Bible tells us he's doing a couple of things. First of all, he's substituting Go to chapter 27. Look at verse 15. It says, Now it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at the time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. And when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which do you want me to release to you, Barabbas, or Jesus called the Christ? For he knew that out of envy they had handed Jesus over to them. And while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent a message to him saying, Don't have anything to do with this innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. And so when Pilate said, which of the two, in verse 21, do you want me to release to you? He was astonished and amazed that the crowd fired back Barabbas. Then he said, what do you want me to do with Jesus? They said, crucify him. So what was Jesus doing on the cross? Well, he was substituting. You you see, Barabbas was, was a notorious, the Bible uses the word thief. It's a stronger word than that. He was a revolutionary. He was planning a coup attempt against the local authorities there in Palestine. Man, this guy was sinister, he was diabolical, he was notorious, and everybody knew that Barabbas was out to overthrow. He was a usurper, man, he was subversive. And yet when, when Pilate asked, he just knew that everybody would want the freedom of this innocent man, Jesus, and they would all want to put away this usurper, this subversive Barabbas. And to his amazement, they cried, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus. You see, in a very literal sense, Jesus was the substitute for Barabbas on the cross. It wasn't Jesus' cross, it was Barabbas, but Jesus was substituting for him. We're glad to have Children's Church in here with us today. How many of you guys in Children's Church, you play on a sports team, baseball, soccer, basketball? Raise your hand. 
Oh, man, that's awesome. How many of you that just raise your hand, you're real good at the sport you play. Keep your hand up. Awesome. So you know what I'm about to tell you. Let's say it's basketball, and you're the best dribbler on the team, and you need a break, and so they substitute somebody in for you to give you a break. Or if you've been playing baseball, and all of a sudden somebody says, Trimble, go in for Jones. Well, you know what that means. It means you come up off the bench, and you go and take a position and a slot that belonged to somebody else. Listen, the cross belonged to somebody else. Not only belonged to Barabbas, but it belonged to you and 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 and me. And God said, Jesus, go in and sub for humanity. Jesus, go in and be the sub and take their pain, their sin, their consequences. Jesus, you sub. And that's what he did. So when we partake of the, the... Juice and the bread, it just simply wants to help us remember that Jesus is our substitute. But not only is he our substitute, what else is Jesus doing on the cross? Man, he was suffering. He was suffering. The cross is one of the most hideous ways man has ever devised as a means of execution. Matter of fact, when people are put to death today, it's a, it's a swift, easy, painless process. In his book, The Life of Christ, Frederick Farrar said this, he said, a death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death have to offer. It's horrible and it's ghastly. Then he goes on to describe dizziness, cramps, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torments, horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point that they can endure at all. All stopping just short of the point that would have given the sufferer relief of unconsciousness. Say what you will. The cross of Jesus Christ was a horrible way to die. Matter of fact, Josephus was an early church historian. And he talked to eyewitness accounts of Christ on the cross. And it wasn't that Jesus was marred and beaten. And we've all kind of seen the passion of Christ and the play, the movie of about three or four years ago. I want you to know that the passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ, was far worse than what the director and the movie portrayed. Josephus, that early church historian, said not that you couldn't tell it was Jesus on the cross. You couldn't even tell because he was so marred, he was so abused, he was so cut up, he was so beaten. You could not even tell that not only who he was, you couldn't tell what he was. Jesus died on the cross. What was he doing on the cross? Well, he was suffering for your sins. It's amazing to me that the Gospels race through the life of Jesus Christ. Three chapters cover 30 years of his birth and his growth into manhood. 22 chapters covered three years of his ministry. But then incredibly, a single week in the life of Christ takes three lengthy chapters. And two of those are devoted to three hours on the cross. It seems that God's focal point of history comes down to this moment where Jesus stepped in and was our substitute. Where Jesus stepped in and suffered for your sins and my sins on the cross. And believe me, we got a bunch of sinners in this room today. But not only that, but Jesus was satisfying. What was he doing on the cross? Man, he was satisfying. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
is only a concept until we comprehend the way which Jesus' death on the cross satisfied God's wrath for sin. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke on the holiness of God, that it's the chief attribute of God, and it's God's holiness demands that sin be punished. So in the holiness of God, instead of judging all of us for our sins right now in grace, he sent a substitute who suffered for our sins, who paid the penalty, paid the debt, paid all that would be necessary so that we could have a right standing in the presence of a holy God. And so Jesus died as our substitute to suffer all that you and I would have to suffer for the penalty of sin in our life to satisfy God. You say, that sounds awful cruel of God. No, 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 that's a great expression of love. The Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Look at verse 50 in your text. An incredible thing happened when Jesus died. To show that God's justice and holiness was satisfied, look at what happened. And when Jesus had cried again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. In other words, he died. And listen to this. And at the moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks split, and the tombs broke open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised back to life. See, you can't understand the gospel until you understand the idea of Jesus satisfying the holiness of God. The temple represented God's place. The temple represented where Jesus, or God, dwelt with his people. And in that temple, there was a special room. It was a real small room called the Holies of Holies. It was separated by a curtain, the veil there in verse 50 and 51 and 52. It was separated by a veil that was eight inches thick. I guess that's about eight inches. It's about a third of the thick. It's about the third of the width of the chair you're sitting in. Eight inches thick. And yet the Bible says that it was torn in two. Why would God have the writers of the scripture take the attention off the cross and focus on a curtain in the holies of holies where only one man was allowed in there once a year at the atonement of, at the day of atonement? Why would he shift the focus? I simply believe that it was God's way of saying that when Jesus died on the cross and he gave up his his life as a ransom, as a payment for your sin, and, and when Jesus said, it is finished, God said in heaven, debt paid in full. And the temple was was broken so now that men and women and boys and girls have free and open access to God in heaven through his son, Jesus Christ. That God is no longer separated from his people by a curtain or by sin. That Jesus Christ has broken down the wall of separation. He has conquered the wall of sin. He will eventually destroy death in three days. But Jesus Christ now has brought God and man together through his satisfying work on on the cross of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So when you partake of the Lord's Supper, it's to remember that he substituted for you, that that he suffered in your place, and that he satisfied the holiness of God. See, in just a minute, 
We're going to give you an opportunity. It's different for us today. You know me, if we do things around here the same very long, it makes me a little nervous. we got to kind of mix it up. And so today we want you to remember his families. If you're the head of the household and maybe you're a single mom, maybe you're a, a newlywed couple, maybe you're a long-time family of two, three, four, five, 24, doesn't matter. Here's what we want you to do. We want you to make sure that your heart is right with Jesus Christ. And we practice open communion here. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and there's no sin in your heart and you're right before God, we welcome you to embrace the the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. However, if you are not a believer, this part of the service is not for you. And if you are a believer and there's unconfessed sin in your heart, you first need to deal with the sin in your heart and then partake of the Lord's Supper. To remember what he was doing on the cross substituting and suffering and satisfying in your place for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. This morning we're going to invite you as families to come and remember, to remember through the object lesson of grape juice, which represents the blood of Jesus Christ, and the bread, which represents the body. That was your substitute. That was your satisfaction in front of a holy God and was your substitute and who bore your suffering. And what we would like for you to do as a family, after we pray, is to quickly come to one of the five communion points around the, around the auditorium. Just go to the one closest to you. There will be people behind each table. And they'll simply say, God bless you, and, uh, and, and you feel free to pray to, off to the side or at the altar. They'll even pray a prayer blessing over you if, if you want that this morning. Or they'll tell you you can pray back at your seat. We'd like for you to come to that communion point, two in the aisle, three up here, and remember and give thanks. And as a family, take communion together. Take the bread first and then the cup. And then put the cup back on the table or back into just on the table. And they'll take care of it from there. And then you can slip to the side and pray or go back to your seat and pray. But the big thing is remember what Jesus did on the cross for you. Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes and would you pray with me? please. Our Heavenly Father, in just a few moments, we're going to physically remember by taking of the grape juice and the bread. There's nothing mystical or magical about it. It's kind of like pictures that help us to remember. And may the bread be a picture of your, of your suffering and the grape juice a picture of your satisfying a holy God. And may the whole event be a, a time of remembrance of how you stepped in and was our substitute. And you bore our pain. Father, I bless the bread. And all who eat it today, may we do this in remembrance of you. Father, I ask that you bless the cup. Lord, that's representative of your shed blood that was shed not only for my sins and the sins of everyone here, but for the sins of the entire world. I pray your blessing. 
on that. And Father, may this be a holy moment as we come and simply partake of the Lord's Supper together as families. Lord, may we do it quickly. May we do it with remembrance. May we do it with joy. May we do it with thrill that our families get to share in this experience this morning together. And so, Father, I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Now, in a holy moment, I'd just like for all of us to stand. Don's just going to play softly on the piano. The prayer has been prayed. We'll put the final amen elsewhere in the service. And I invite you now to quickly come. Go to the communion point closest to you. And we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. partition. The veil has been torn top to bottom. We've remembered, but now what does that mean for us today? It means that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have the Spirit of God Almighty living within us, and we can pray the prayer of the song they sung, God, let it rain on us. Send your power, send your kingdom, and I, you and I, we have the privilege to be a part of the moving of God around the world, and I am excited about that today. God's spirit in us today, moving and advancing the kingdom of God. Now, listen, hang on just a second. I heard a couple of weeks ago, I was in a Sunday school class, and, and I won't call the class out because I've got to go back and straighten them out, but man, they were kind of, <laughs> they were kind of just talking about how, oh man, Christianity is just suffering and everything's growing but Christianity. I thought I was right, but I went back just to double check. And the latest things that I can find from, from all the things that I've been reading, do you know the fastest growing faith in the world today, not in America, not in Europe, but the fastest growing faith today is Christianity. It is blowing atheism, it is blowing Islam, it is blowing everything out the door. People are remembering, people are embracing the spirit of God is alive and well and moving all over the world. And if God is moving all over the world, man, I want it to rain here. I want it to rain on us. Let me tell you two stories. A missionary was in Argentina. He was tired. He had preached all morning. He was wore slap out. You have to be from the south to know what slap out means. And he was wore out, and he had promised months ago that he'd go up into the mountains of Argentina and meet with some Indians. And he was tired. He talked to his wife. He tried to get out of it, and she said, well, you know, honey, you can't back out of a commitment. And he said, all right, I know. And he said, well, I, I don't even have enough gas to get back. And it was a two-hour trip up the mountain and a two-hour, you know, thing down, and he's tired, and he's kind of fussing with God the whole way, and just really doesn't see any sense and any point in it. And he'd been faithful to pray and faithful to serve and faithful to love the Lord. And finally, his, his gas tank is just both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and automotively on empty. He pulls to the top of a hill on the top of the plateau in Argentina. Twenty men rush his Jeep. He is in fear for his life. 
They look angry because they're crying. They are begging this missionary to tell them how to know Jesus Christ, how to become a Christian. He doesn't get out of the Jeep and he leads 20 of these Indians in Argentina to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And just as soon as he got done with that and and he said, you know, let's meet and I'll disciple you further. 20 more men came from the woods that were kind of lurking and seeing it. And they said, we want what they just got. Guy didn't even leave the Jeep and he had 40 converts right there. Showed the Jesus movie. That Campus Crusade has done. 20 more people got saved. And what he what turned in, or what started off as just a brief little one-stop visit, has flourished into an incredible ministry to the Indians in the bluffs and plateaus of Argentina. But now how's he gonna get back? He's out of gas. And he starts to leave, and they say, Oh no, 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 no. Pastor, you cannot leave. And they wanted him to stay and they fixed this wonderful dinner and they sat down and he discipled them and, and loved them and they say, what can we give you? And he said, no, 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 no. Because these are poor folks. He said, no, I don't really need it. And they said, no, 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 we got something special for you. And he just kind of thought to his mind, you know, whatever it is, you know, a homemade hat or, or something, you know, he'd take back to his missus, you know. And uh, he said, we didn't know what to give you, so we got you gasoline. You see all of those tanks over there? They're just for you. Now, would somebody explain to me from a natural cause and effect world how Indians could meet a man they didn't know, know that he would need gasoline, and want to become believers in Jesus Christ? I'm simply telling you that there is a movement of God all over this world, and I want to be a part of it. I want it to reign in my life. I want it to reign in Kirby Church. I want it to reign all over our area so that men and women, boys and girls, will know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. All men, may our hearts pray, let it rain. Let it rain. Let me tell you one other story. This is an incredible story to me. you got to kind of listen to the story to get it. A Jewish missionary serves to Arab Jews within the context of the nation of Israel in the area of Beersheba. Well, the work hadn't gone very well, but God was doing stuff. Because God's always doing stuff that we can't see. Because God's always gathering the rain clouds, isn't he? God's always gathering the blessings. God's always positioning people in the kingdom. And so this guy was discouraged and he went to India just for a little furlough, for a little relaxation to kind of walk with the Lord. So he kind of hiked and prayed a little bit. Met some folks who had 10,000 Chinese Bibles. Here is a Jewish man ministering to Arabs and Beersheba, Israel. And a guy in Canada looked at him and said, we got 10,000 Chinese Bibles, don't have a clue what's going on, but it hasn't gone like we planned. Would you want 10,000 Chinese Bibles? Now, if you don't know a missionary, you ought to know a missionary never turns anything down. And the missionary took the 10,000 Chinese Bibles, shipped them to Beersheba, Israel. Well, as he continued praying, and walking and traveling through Canada, he met two old ladies who had been praying for seven to 10 years that God would somehow save Chinese Jews. Now think about that phrase, Chinese Jews. 
I'm not sure the ladies knew what they were praying specifically for, but their heart was to see Chinese people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in Israel. Now, I don't know if you've done a demographic study lately. Not a whole lot of Chinese live in there. But in Beersheba, the government kind of signed a, a governmental agreement, accord with the nation of China, and they would fly in Chinese workers to Beersheba for two months, and then they would fly them back home. So the ladies looked at this missionary traveling through Canada and said, I don't know why, but God's just told us to, to give you the money, and if you ever need it, then use it. So the guy went back with 10,000 Chinese Bibles, about $7,000 to Beersheba, Israel. And all of a sudden, Chinese plane load after Chinese plane load started to land in Beersheba, Israel, to do work, build houses, build plants, build facilities in Israel. He called the ladies in the mission board in Canada and said, hey, will you release us the money? And they said, do you have Chinese Jews there? And they said, no. And they said, we can't release the money. The very next plane that landed, nobody to this day can still explain it. It came in from Hong Kong. There were two Chinese Jews walked off the plane. I don't know how that happens. All I know is that the Spirit of God is alive and well all over the world. The guy called back to Canada, said, hey, we got two Chinese Jews. He said, great, you got the money. And for the last year and a half, they have seen over 700 Chinese people accept Christ as their Savior in Beersheba, Israel. And listen, if God can do that there, if God can send the rain there, God help us, let it rain here. If God can do it in Argentina, my passion, my heart is that the Spirit of God falls and rains on us so that men and women, boys and girls, not only come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but from here we raise up a standard that boldly declares that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Holy, Eternal Son of God and the Savior of the world. Let it rain, let it rain, let it rain. Let it rain.